who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Today, I am absolutely delighted to welcome Sarah Menker and Hans Tong to ETL. First and foremost, Sarah Menker is the founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. Grow's data analytics and forecasting models inform companies involved in the agricultural supply chain and organizations impacted by climate change. Prior to founding Grow, Sarah was in Morgan Stanley's Commodities Group, where she managed an options trading portfolio. She was named a global young leader by the World Economic Forum and is a fellow of the Aspen Institute, as well as a trustee of the Mandela Institute for Development Studies. Secondly, super excited to welcome Hans Tung, the managing director or managing partner at GGV Capital, who is focused on early stage investments across the global digital, digital economy. He is consistently recognized amongst top venture capital investors in the world, having been named to the Forbes Midas list nine consecutive years from 2013 to 2021, most recently ranking number three. His portfolio includes 18 companies valued at more than $1 billion. He also oversees GGV's DEI initiatives, and he is the co-host of the podcast, Evolving for the Next Billion. That explores entrepreneurship in US, China, India, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. Hans also became a significant investor in food and ag tech. So I'm sure we're gonna hear a lot more about why companies like Grow Intelligence have captured his interest. Huge welcome to you both, Sarah and Hans. So let's kick things off by getting a bit of an introduction to Grow Intelligence. Sarah, I'm gonna turn it over to you for a brief explainer. All right, thanks for, thanks for having us, Emily. Um, great to meet everybody virtually. <laughs> um, I'm the founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence and, and Grow is, is a company that I founded in 2014 with the mission of you know, helping solve for real world systems like food security and climate change where they're quite complex and have a lot of inefficiencies. We are a, an AI company that ingests very large disparate data sets that have anything to do with the global agricultural and climate um, markets and essentially ingest that data that can come in any format, any language. We standardize that, that data, both in terms of format as well as language, and then we normalize it through essentially a, an ontology and a knowledge graph that we've developed that helps us sort of find the, the dots and connect the dots between sort of all of the components that drive the supply and the demand side. Now, when I started Grow, the goal was to really do this, you know, for food security and to say, how do we predict the supply and the demand of food for every agricultural product on earth every single day? And when you think about that, that's super challenging because agriculture is made up of tens of thousands of different products. Each one has a set of biological rules that govern how it grows. Uh, and the supply side is constantly disrupted by climate shocks and weather-related shocks oftentimes. And then on the demand side, if you think about it, it sort of boils down to us as individuals and sort of what we consume. And so in sort of modeling this system on a real-time basis, we ended up sort of understanding that agriculture was at this very important intersection between sort of our ecology and sort of our global economy. And so in contributing sort of to the agricultural world, we realized that we were also generating data and insights about sort of both our ecological and our um, economic worlds. And so we develop uh, millions of different predictive models that are essentially making this data available on a more real-time basis. So think 
up to four months in advance in the US than when US government releases come out. But if you're looking at places like Russia or China or Brazil, you know, we're one to two years ahead of sort of national estimates. And that's sort of really harnessing the power of, of, of AI in, in a way where we really mix it in with deep domain expertise and sort of human intelligence that informs that um, at, the, at the very beginning. That's amazing. You've come so far since I first learned about your organization, but I'm actually curious if we go back even before GROW, uh, just experiences you've had in your childhood, in your sort of early career that continue, like the experiences you've had that continue to inform your work uh, every day to day. Share a few of those stories with us. Yeah, I mean, I was born and raised in Ethiopia. You know, my family still lives back home. Uh, and, you know, growing up in, in a country at a time when, you know, the headlines were all about famine and uh, starvation. And, you know, there were all these sort of songs and movements to raise money for the country. You grow up, you know, very aware of sort of the notion of scarcity and not taking anything for granted. Right. And so even after I sort of came to the U.S. on scholarship and I went to Mount Holyoke, I knew that what I wanted to do was work on problems that involved the real world in, in sort of an impactful way. And so part of why I became a commodities trader really and not sort of join you know, another part of sort of Morgan Stanley where it was sort of more say high tech finance was actually because commodities are so linked to our national economies and sort of natural resource wealth. And so I was always sort of, you know, I think curious, but also motivated and driven by trying to understand how markets sort of evolve and, and how to sort of solve for, you know, deep challenges like food insecurity in not, you know, developed countries, but really developing countries. Uh, but it's, you know, I quickly learned it's very complicated, first with energy. And then I, I jumped into agriculture, not recognizing it was going to be <laughs> it's like way more complicated than what we were doing on the energy side back then. So amazing amazing thank you for sharing you know Hans same for you uh, yeah, many many years ago you were an, an industrial engineering student at Stanford before it was called MSNE um, curious how you found your way to venture capital and doing what you do today I mean there must be some sort of inspirations that you had while you were at school and in your 20s that led to you becoming on the Forbes Midas list uh, well, thank you, first of all, for having us here. Um, we're a small investor in Sarah's company, and, and it's been amazing to be a part of her journey and see her do amazing things. And part of the reason of being a VC was to be able to work with so many amazing founders and help them realize your vision. If they're successful, then we're successful. Um, and uh, as a Taiwanese-American, uh, growing up in Taiwan, it's a uh, you know, small place, and uh, it, you, you learn that you're part of a larger ecosystem. So you need to be value add as, uh, to other people around you. And so, whereas um, Sarah learned scarcity is an issue for us, you know, how to be helpful uh, and, and add value is something that was kind of ingrained in, the, in me growing up. Um, then coming to um, the US when I was 13, growing up in LA uh, and seeing how um, it is such a different world in Taiwan. Taiwan is all about manufacturing, semiconductors, uh, personal computers, and 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 always all about media. I'm like, where does the, these two worlds intersect? And it turns out that, that being at Stanford, you see how the media business on one hand and, and upstream components on the other hand, eventually are all part of a larger ecosystem. Um, and that's uh, that that sort of ecosystem uh, way of thinking kind of uh, led me to pursue a major in industrial engineering, but. 
and I was also very fortunate to be on campus at Stanford at the right time, it's 1993, right at the cusp of the Internet 1.0 become a, become a thing. Um, and then fast forward today, we had 2.0 in 20, 2006, 2007. Now it's Web3 in uh, 2020, 2021. So it, it just, it's amazing how things have changed and the more they've changed that the, 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 you've on the right side of history, you're open-minded, you try to build system that's open where people can help to create value in the network. That kind of ethos and um, a way of thinking has served me well in my career and also eventually led me to do uh, be a VC as well. Ah, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, you know, one of the most pressing challenges of our time, maybe the one in the next 10, 20, 30 years is really climate, right? And I think both of you recognize that probably before most of us did. Uh, so, you know, let's start with let's start with that sort of broader question. You know, climate issues um, it, are probably requiring us to think a little differently, work together a little differently. You know, in a in a cross sector manner, right? Public, private, academic, nonprofit, and all of these different entities need to work together and find a path forward. Um, you know, maybe a direct question for you, Sarah. Um, you did, you came out of. Wall Street as a commodities trader, and you you knew that you wanted to get back to um, solving for food insecurity, uh, and you had a number. Obviously, you have lots of options in how you do that. Um, how did you choose to go the route of a VC funded startup? I didn't go down the route of a VC funded startup. I went the route of solving for a problem I was very passionate about, and that solving for that problem led me to sort of understand that what I needed to do was create a company, not a nonprofit, for example, right? There's also that route. So the first is sort of motivation of starting through a problem that you're genuinely passionate about, because then that sort of re leads you to sort of the right um, solution, right? And, and I think that to me, the first was what made me realize that was just how complex the challenge was going to be and how much funding it would need over time. And, and also sort of the, the different interests you'd have to weave if you're solving for something as complex, complicated as food security. You're dealing with, you know, farms that are half acres and farms that are 100,000 acres. You're dealing with very small food and beverage companies. You're dealing with mega companies. You're dealing with governments and you're dealing with traders and you're dealing, you know, so you have to deal with sort of a very sort of complex system. And as a business, you can sort of design yourself around how do I solve for that problem? And so, you know, we started by really saying, who are the domain experts that we want to hire, as opposed to who are the technologists we're going to hire? Because the domain experts then said, you know, here's how I think, I mean, when we hired our first um, environmental scientist, it was because I saw their resume, like, because it came in and I said, oh, I've never worked with satellite imagery before, but like, this sounds like something we should do. We should hire this person. And, you know, so that sort of deep domain expertise informing it and then bringing in sort of world-class engineering to scale that mm -hmm. sort of human knowledge became the lens by mm -hmm. which we sort of took that path. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the great things about sort of taking the path of a VC funded startup or, you know, it's sort of the path of a business is that you, you innovate and you're super agile and you change your ways as you get more data and information and you have to be stuck. I always say like, you have to always be driven by sort of your mission and your purpose, but mm -hmm. the strategy and sort of, especially the tactical moves you take from a day-to-day -day, month to month basis will change while sort of that 
final end goal always remains the same. And that just, I, I think, works really well for the, the types of investors that we brought on board early, which, you know, I think that's what VC is great at. You know, I, I think you had a brilliant and very clear narrative for a very long time around closing this global calorie gap, which you explained in Big Macs. And it was so resonant for me and having that be front and center. And it like that's the problem that you're looking to solve. Uh, and then finding the most efficient and optimized way to do that uh, makes a lot of sense. And it's unique that you started not with the tech, but with the domain expertise, because ultimately we have to be applicable to the domain experts at the end of the day. So. Uh, that was a super smart move that you did that. You know, let me ask a, a deeper question. I know that um, with the domain experts on your team now, you probably have lots of ability to work across many different sectors and all of the different components of the ecosystem. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, it's a complex, chaotic system that we're working with. This is a wicked problem to close that massive calorie gap that you explained. Um, what sorts of um, organizations tend to be your direct customers, you know, how do you partner with them? How do you, um, you know, share your, your products with them? And then how do you communicate with other stakeholders in the system who may not necessarily be your direct customers if that exists too? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I think we have a saying at Grow, which is the, the AI is only as good as the HI behind it. So you better get your human intelligence right, because otherwise <laughs> you won't build a very smart system. You might build an AI, it just might not be very good. Um, and so if you care to solve for it, start with that. And I, I, I think there's fundamentally an important lesson for AI companies in general and whatever sort of domains we're talking about. And, and make sure that the team resembles the world you're trying to model, whether it's in the domain domains that they're from or the languages they speak or the way that their mind operates, right? Like this notion of sort of diversity expands so beyond just like, are you a man or a woman? Are you black? Or are you not? To are you truly using and, you know, do you have a little microcosm of the world you're modeling sitting in your company? And if you don't, you're going to have other challenges down the line. So be really smart about that. Right. And and so what that has allowed us to do is think about the supply chain end to end. So if you think mm -hmm. of an agricultural system and you know, I call it the anatomy of agriculture, you have you have sort of people who feed into the system. So think of that as policymakers. Um, think of that as seed and fertilizer companies or crop protection companies, et cetera. So people who are impacting the farmer that, that, that sort of grows that stuff. We work with them and we work with them on a sort of two levels. On sort of the seed and, and, and input company basis, it's like, what products should you develop? What are people going to want? Um, and for where? Because uh, that's hyper local in terms of what you develop. And from a policy standpoint is, how do you manage for national food security risks? So from strategic reserves management, et cetera. So food security is national security in, in sort of most countries. Then you go further down, and we don't really work with farmers because farmers hyper-optimize to a field and we optimize to a system. So we really think of sort of the whole world in sort of an interconnected way. But once the farmer grows that product, it needs to go somewhere. So you have logistics companies and you have trading companies that actually trade it or processing companies that process that product. And so there's applications there because ultimately they wanna know how much was produced and of what type. And so the same models that you've built at the top actually impact sort of the buying side. And then ultimately mm -hmm. you have one more layer, which is the companies that brand the goods, right? So a CPG company that um, creates chocolate bars or creates your soups or, you know, whatever that is, because all of those are the ingredients that go into it. And, and ultimately your retailers that sell it. So essentially we touch everyone across the system except for the farmer 
and the end buyer like you and I, right? We're not a consumer product and we're not a product for the farmer to optimize like a precision farming type um, role. But there are many other players in the ecosystem, as you rightfully note, that you need to get in. Um, you have lots of advocacy organizations. You have lots of universities, academic research institutes that generate tons of research that we leverage and scale sometimes, right? We're not reinventing the wheel everywhere. Sometimes we're saying, where's some amazing science being done and how do you take that and automate it and scale it? And so we like to work both with academic institutions as well as sort of advocacy organizations and recently actually started a program called Grow for Good, which is if you um, are working on a problem that's gonna solve a challenge in sort of a net positive way for society, and you're gonna open it up for others to use, you can get access to any level of our product for free. Hmm. So whether it is sort of the, you know, um, like swipe your credit card type, you know, put in your credit card information and, and sort of buy a subscription to a single sort of application and a portal, you know, all the way to the level that we engage with some of the large corporates, which is really thinking about, you know, operations across the scale and doing much more enterprise level partnerships where it's it's deeply strategic in nature, we'll give you access to any of that. And so we really, I'm really excited, especially this year about bringing Growth for Good to life in a much bigger way. Cause I think that if we are gonna be sort of a trusted source for the industry, we have to be trusted by everyone, not just some. And, you know, that's, I think, a really important principle. That's beautiful. You know, I, I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier that really struck me and reinforced this notion. To get the AI right, you have to get the HI right, you know, the human intelligence right. And again and again, you bring that up. You know, I, I just super fun. Uh, a couple of hours to get today, um, ago today, uh, I was talking to a chef who said, you know, all, with all your computer vision work, there's a difference between parsley stems and cilantro stems. And I'm like, really? They look exactly the same. So <laughs> But apparently he can tell, right, just by seeing them. And you need the domain experts in the room to ground truth and, and to guide the development of products. Otherwise, we're not going to get it right. Um, Hans, switching over to you, uh, you know, you saw around the corner pretty early on, too, and have developed this deep expertise and interest in food tech and ag tech. You've invested in a number of companies in this area, obviously, with Grow as others. And as the, one of the top VCs in the world, I mean, you have a an opportunity to invest in literally anything. So, I mean, what brought you into the space? Why are you so excited about it? How did you find your way to Sarah? You know, tell us more about this. Sure. Um, I, I've just remember started my career in uh, investment banking. So where Sarah worked at Morgan Stanley, I, I was doing M&A um, uh, on the investment banking side at Merrill Lynch um, on Wall Street. Um, that led me from uh, New York to Hong Kong um, and then um, uh, a group of friends from Ivy League and Stanford Berkeley wanted to do internet startup. So as many people are thinking about, should I do a Web3 startup now at Stanford or drop off on Stanford? We were thinking, you know, what, what can we, what can a bunch of 25, 26 year olds do in Web 1.0? And, um, and that, so I ended up doing two startups, um, sold both of them, didn't make any money, but learned a lot and ended up coming back um, and joined a VC firm. And start doing VC both here in the U.S. as well as in Asia, and and the, and, uh, the advantage of, of being having almost um, altogether probably by then um, four, four or three years of banking experience, three years of of growth capital investing experience, and then four years of startup experience, I, I was more ready to take advantage of opportunities that came out with Web two dollars. 
And so most of the investments, the 18 unicorns that invested really rose um, out of 2007, 2008, that class up, up to now. And um, as uh, some of these companies like Airbnb and, and Peloton and Xiaomi and StockX were growing, um, it, it becomes increasingly clear that there, there are much larger issues that uh, people have tried to tackle in the past, like clean tech and others, that up to that point hadn't been successful as solving them and scaling them to large outcomes. But at some point in time, th that's very much needed. Um, everyone's familiar with the story of Tesla and how, how they come about. And it took a long time for this to become successful. Once it did, uh, it, it, it became a much bigger outcome than anyone thought was you know, potentially possible. So I just thought that we just thought that you look around the world, food uh, security would increasingly be a bigger problem. Uh, with 7 billion people around the world back in 2016, um, it will get to 10 billion in the next uh, 40 years. And they, and given the climate change, it's going to be increasingly harder and harder to grow food um, efficiently uh, and effectively. At the same time, food wastage was becoming a bigger problem as well. A lot of things that we that are sold into the grocery stores, a lot of them ends up being wasted um, and uh, become perishable items. And so we just knew that it's a much bigger problem that someone eventually to solve it. And the question we asked ourselves that are we can we find great founders that we can back that could solve this uh, systematically and uh, learn the lesson from before, um, acquire the right domain knowledge, but at the same time approach it from a sort of tech lens from someone who built software companies, built smart tech companies that know how to scale and know how to create and iterate very quickly and efficiently. Um, so not everything is move, moving in, in a manner of months, but matter of days or weeks. Um, so have that internal clock that can fast turnaround and iterate, get feedback and then uh, innovate again. Someone who's familiar with that sort of feedback loop uh, and a way of doing things. And eventually we were introduced to um, someone who's doing battery farming uh, in, uh, in New York. Um, Irving was someone who connected Sarah and myself. And when we invest in battery, uh, valuation of less than 50 million pre, today's over 2 billion uh, in value in the last four, four and a half years. And so uh, the kind of value they're creating with indoor farming was extremely interesting. And having uh, grown, uh, been through a lot of ups and downs with, uh, with Irving, it was very easy for us to ask, who else do you know in New York or other places that you have come in contact with that solve the interesting problem with a very promising team? And that led us to Sarah and Grow Intelligence. So a lot of things what we do is look for founders who are doing amazing work. And then that person's network will lead us to other promising founders who, who, who think alike, have similar kind of approach to solving problems, even if they come from very different backgrounds. And that, that's what makes jobs so interesting and fun. I'm going to dig into that a little bit because I know you also started and run the DEI program uh, within GGV. Can you comment on that a little bit? Because you know that having lots of backgrounds benefit, but as you sort of evolved as a, 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 an investor and doing this within your company, uh, what are some of the lessons you've learned? Right. I think with uh, Black Lives Matter and then South Asian Hate they were, and the Me Too movement, they were cons just consecutively uh, over the last five years a lot more issues that have become a lot more, uh, people more aware of them. And, and thanks partially to social media, gather more momentum uh, than ever when people realize that many more around the world suffering, suffering from the same issues. It's not local anymore, it's extremely universal. And so it was a group effort. Uh, I can't say I'm the one that heads the program because there's so many people in our company all doing interesting things. 
uh, we have someone on our IR team, uh, Jesse, that leads our ESG efforts uh, with respect to uh, our LPs and, and help us to figure out what are the right organizations we want to donate to across the world. And that's in the U.S., multiple cities in the U.S., in Asia, multiple countries in Asia, Latin America, and, and so forth. And um, we also have people that started um, a fellowship program to help recruit um, college students from diversity backgrounds to be interns at some of the best technology companies and startups in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And uh, we also have efforts that work with, uh, we, we spend time working with Ares, my colleagues, uh, Jeff and Jen spend time with, uh, with Ares to help to recruit um, uh, female directors to join board, mem be board members of interesting tech companies that are ready to scale global IPO. Um, and I spend time uh, helping um, uh, the contributing to the Asian uh, American Foundation uh, led by Jerry Yang and Joe Tsai of Alibaba Yahoo that try to do more for the Asian American community here in, in the US. Um, and I spent spend time working with uh, Eric Yuan at Zoom and, uh, and other VCs uh, to raise money for Asian community, Asian American community groups that were fighting stuff, uh, fighting Asian, Asian hate crimes. And so all, all that I've, I've somewhat contributed, but it's still a very small part of what overall efforts that's going on all around us. So having a, a chance to at least be more aware and making others more aware of what's going on has been has been good, uh, but it's a lot more than we've done. I'm so grateful. You know, it's been quite the last couple of years. I mean, it's very emotional, very, very intense to be part of this and to know that while we don't necessarily have answers yet, that everybody is much more aware and doing what we can from where we sit is is just really, really heartwarming for me. Let me go to back to uh, the topic that a lot of our students are very interested in. Uh, so when we started class last week, uh, one of the top movies on Netflix was Don't Look Up. And I found that super interesting. I had watched it over the holidays as well. And uh, you know, the, the whole entire sort of point of the movie, for those of you who have watched it, I won't know spoilers, I promise, um, is... Uh, you know, it's it, it's kind of a parody on society right now. And and big picture, these scientists come and they're like, there's a meteor coming and, you know, here are all the numbers and we've done like the analysis backwards and forwards and 25 other scientists have done their analysis as well. This meteor is going to hit Earth. And yet um, the story and the whole don't look up is there's like an entire backlash, a whole entire group of people were like, there's no media, meteor coming. Earth is going to be fine. Like, and so... I guess maybe like coming back to the topic at hand, you know, we um, we have information, we have data, but people still make bad decisions or people still are unwilling to uh, sort of look at the science or look at the information rationally. So, you know, back to you, Sarah, I know that you're able to really bring some incredible intelligence to uh, your your customers, you know, the fact that you're able to show, you know, a country like China, like a year or two ahead of what policy makers can publish right now, uh, what their numbers look like is incredible. But, you know, beyond the data itself, what other um, what other things need to be in place for action to result from uh, information? Yeah, I, I watched um, the movie and I was like, I don't know whether to laugh or cry here. It's a great film, but, you know, it's... It's <laughs> extremely ironic. Yeah, it's, you know, because it was so, I mean, just re replace that with climate change and the conversations on yeah. climate change or... Every topic. <laughs> with, with, with security, right? Um, and, you know, 
if you go back to the start of COVID and all the supply chain shocks that we had and, you know, I, I we went from a world where I, I remember, you know, when we talked to journalists, it was like every publication had like one dedicated agriculture journalist, if that, or some, and then all of a sudden every journalist became a food journalist because they were, play, you know, it's like, oh, food and agriculture is so linked to like our macroeconomic systems. It drives inflationary pressures. It does, you know, all these things. And when the breaks happened for a company like ours, it wasn't surprising because we fundamentally knew that some of the structures that are broken are sort of around things like lack of trust, right? I mean, knowing that in the, you know, if you take the fresh produce space, uh, contracts are negotiated day-to-day, week-to-week, if you're lucky. Forget, you know, years in advance to create stability and sort of a surety of supply and the price at which you're going to get it at. And so that was sort of the ultimate you know, uh, sort of signal that like, hey, guys, the system is broken and it continues to show us it's broken. Right. I mean, global food inflation is at all time highs and it's only getting worse. It's not getting better right now. Right. And then on the other side, you have climate change and there's lots of yelling and screaming about that. And it's like, hey, I hope we're not all underwater by the time we decide it's time to take action. And and I think that goes to something which is really around two two, I think, key aspects to driving change, right? And and across a system, right? Because I think you can drive behaviors of organizations and individuals and organizations very differently than in inspiring change across a system, which is really what we're talking about here, right? So Mm -hmm. for us, it's easy to go motivate a sale in a corporate because you do an ROI analysis and say, here's, here's, how much more money you make, or here's trader, how, how, how much better your trading strategy can get as a result of what we do. But you take that back and you go back to sort of the mission aspect. It's two things. One is trust. There's no trust across these systems and trust is broken. And two is communication, which is, you know, scientists produce great science, but scientists are maybe not the best communicators. So how do we actually, and, and we spend a lot of time at, you know, doing this at Grow, which is taking deeply scientific knowledge and making it humanly accessible, right? Because the more people sort of understand, the more questions get asked, but also if people trust you as a source, then it becomes like a basis for starting a conversation. Maybe it's not the thing that drives the ultimate change, but there's a reference point by which people start. When the reference point is completely disparate and different and nobody even knows how much you know, stockpile of a particular crop there is in the world to start the conversation around how do I fund that? You know, how do we, how do we exchange it across the system? I think trust is, is not there. And, and, and one of the things that's been so important to us as a company is actually building that trust. And it's been sort of the harder road to building a company because of that, because we say, you know, we started with understanding very individual components very well, meaning can we predict the supply of corn in the United States every day and or, you know, wheat in Russia every day to starting to connect the dots between or the demand of you know pork in China? And then how do you connect the dots between all those things? So it's like forecasting individual components to connecting a real world system and being very transparent about it, because ultimately all of those players across the ecosystem need to trust you. And so we adopted a few key principles around the way we model things, which is if you work with us, all our models are available to you. So you can get the output, but you can get the methodology too, because you know what, that builds one layer of trust. 
Two, we chose some set of our models and we made them free and publicly accessible to everyone, regardless of what type of thing you have. Because again, you have to build trust. And so we started with the markets that everybody understood, like the United States, and have now gone to markets where our advanced lead time is 24 months in advance. You're not going to wait 24 months to validate if what we told you is is good enough. So you're going to say, do I trust the rigor, the integrity of the data, the integrity of the process and sort of their models? And so it's about sort of honesty. So can we provide you the honest answer, which is very different than just the correct answer? Because the honest answer sometimes is actually the confidence interval is very wide and it will only get better over time. And so explaining that to non-statisticians and and business leaders or policymakers is a challenge we confront every single day but I, I think it's doable but I think it comes down to trust and 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 to um, to, uh, to transparency and you know to sort of communication and communicating that correctly yeah I, I am so thrilled uh, that you talked about communication and trust because ultimately persuasion requires it to be um, said in the right way by the right person at the right time, right? You know, it's changing the minds of somebody or a group like requires all those elements and you are really creating the foundation for that to happen. And also doing the really hard work uh, in, in, in um, taking on these additional components to really get the action that we all desire towards a world where the calorie gap is closing as quickly as it possibly can. Um, let me point over to you, Hans. You know, a lot of what you do too is around um, synthesizing a ton of data and, and trying to see in the future. So, you know, how do you look at big food and ag and, and just overall the industry at large? I mean, food and ag is the largest industry on earth. So, um, you know, what, what are you excited about? And, and where does the data point you, for example? Like, I, I don't know if you've used you know, Sarah's platform, for example, to think about your own investment portfolio. I'm curious your thoughts on that front. Yeah, Sarah's points are definitely very useful, especially for those who are, who are uh, trading um, within the financial community. So for us, um, we end up focusing on uh, trends that are a bit more macro um, on where we think the you know the future evolve. Um, the thing, you know, there are a lot of things that I'm excited about. The food, food and ag tech is a key part of it. In, in general, what we're seeing is that thanks to um, all the innovations that have come because of COVID, trying to cope with this changing world that's happening so quickly, um, our economy is getting digitized at a much faster rate than we all thought was possible. In, in Asia, for example, the uh, the, payment, the payments, um, web, the mobile payment space is so much bigger than it was in the U.S. Um, pre-COVID. Um, and over the last uh, two years, things have changed dramatically here. Now, PayPal and Cash App all want to be super app. And five years ago, they don't want to be focused on just one, the one thing that they, 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 they're good at. And um, you see that in uh, EdTech, so much more online um, execution happening, even with what's happening in China from a regulatory standpoint, around the world, we see a lot more companies and startups providing services uh, online. In digital health, um, Teladoc and Levango merged, but there are many more startups um, come to come public uh, to do that, uh, to provide telemedicine a much uh, better, with much better um, care and matching uh, you know, great resources to make it more available to everyone else around the world. So every single segment of, 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 the, uh, of the economy looking at, you're seeing internet and tech playing a much bigger role than before. 
And so the, for us, it's, it's, it's uh, figuring out how to prioritize and, and focus because there's, there's more opportunities and more uh, founders startups to, to invest in than we have money for. And so part of the, the things we have learned over the last decade is that how to um, scale ourselves so that we can be of help to the founders. Um, the first 10 years of GGD, GGD startups that come out in Singapore, first 10 years we raised a bit over a billion. In the last uh, 10 years, the second decade, uh, we raised it just under, um, uh, just under 8 billion. And so we scale up quite a bit internally, added uh, a platform team, at uh, uh, IR team, and a platform team has BD, has marketing, has talent recruiting, has uh, funders and leaders, network training. So we add a lot more services so we can help the, uh, the founders that we work with. So all in all, um, think about how to scale and, um, and how to do that uh, in an iterative fashion. So we learn to take input from founders, from our RLPs, and then evolve ourselves accordingly. Ha has been an amazing learning experience for us, uh, even as we, 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 we do it. And getting back to your previous question about um, Don't Look Up, it, it, it's a fascinating, the first half of the movie is about how to convince people. Then the second half of the movie is that once you identify a real problem, how do we actually go about solving it? And that's a whole set of influence you have to be able to exert in order to find the right method to solve that. And it's it's so such epitomized what we see in the in startup world, because many founders are, um, are smart and can identify problems, but how them all solving it and scaling themselves to do so, it is not easy. And if something doesn't work, there are many reasons why it doesn't work. But um, if, if something can work, you only require doing one or two things extremely well, even if everything else is not perfect. So how do you make those judgment calls or not? That's the right thing to focus on and, and get everyone in the company to solve it. And if you don't know what's the right way of solving it, you go through a process to quickly eliminate the, the method that doesn't work and pick out one that does work. It is sometimes luck. Sometimes it's just having that intuition about what to do. Some of it just say methodically check, test everything before finding it. Then that's uh, that is the the uh, you know billion dollar question. And uh, that's why somebody becomes a unicorn and grows steadily and bigger and bigger. And many startups are still learning that, and that's okay. And the the the, the one word I will preach is uh, uh, having that empathy of what the who you're trying to help and serve, and then be able to work methodically until you can get it right. But all about trying to add value, create value through the ecosystem. And over time, even if you don't get the first two, three, four, twice, over time, you'll be much closer to a goal than otherwise. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm almost bursting with like the spoilers of what happens in the movie because ultimately it was a little, I mean, it, it kind of, yeah, like you can't just solve it with one solution, right? This requires many different people, many different solutions. and iterating would have been very good like for that movie <laughs> we didn't see a second third or fourth try or any testing whatsoever so um you know we have about uh, 15 minutes left and and uh i want to open it up for q a with the with the students so uh hans you have invested in numerous successful companies what stood out to you uh the most among the those companies that made you want to invest in them uh, do you yeah. have any advice for student founders looking for investment? That's two separate questions. First part, you know, someone like Sarah or Irving, you know, smart, um, had a successful career, um, yet have uh, a big vision or a pain point that they really want to solve and accumulate on the way the right experiences, contact, 
and, and team to do that, tackle that as a team and be willing to quickly iterate. If something doesn't work, that's fine. No worries. Let's keep on figuring out what are the, the other ways we can try to make that work. Um, usually the, the best ones to go back are the ones that learn most efficiently and then have the leadership ability to recruit a team, join them to make that work, and then be extremely systematic and clear in their thinking to try different alternatives until they get the right answer. There's, there's no way somebody can just come up with one idea and one approach to solve it and it works immediately. That doesn't exist. So figure out how to um, solve that systematically and be able to build a team that can rally, uh, help each other make the best group decision together uh, is not easy, but the ones that can crack that ends up being the ones that do well. And when we meet founders, uh, those are the kind of qualities we we, we look for. And, um, and if we happen to know a bit about the problem they're trying to solve, then it's it's, it's a meeting of the minds on, on, on that specific industry and a specific problem and the right approach that could potentially solve it. And if, if um, we have spent time on a sector and the, the founder know a lot more than we do, that makes it a lot easier for us to feel comfortable that they know what they're doing. It, even so it's early, we're willing to take a bet on this thing. Fascinating. Uh, I am going to ask this question anyways, but I think you've answered most of it. Uh, lots of upvotes here. Uh, so what is the most important thing students should prioritize to succeed in the current atmosphere? Is it networking? Is it technical skills? Is it communication? Actually, I'd be curious to hear both, you know, Hans and Sarah, like Hans, as you're thinking about investing in founders or Sarah, as you're looking in hiring, like what are you looking for? I'll let Sarah start first. <laughs> um, passion. Uh, because, you know, in, in the end, success as an entrepreneur, success in your career, going into any career at a young age, right. And, and building a company is a career. It's just, it's a different career path than sort of getting hired into a company and, and joining an early stage company. You need passion because that job and, and what you're doing requires a lot of persistence. And it's very hard to be persistent about something you don't care about. <laughs> and so don't go sort of with the trend, right? And I think this this question of in today's market, that's that's the danger in the question. I would take that off and say, what does it take to succeed in life? Because then you'll succeed in this market and you'll succeed in the market that comes after this because it's going to look very different than sort of the last couple of years, right? And so this notion of how do I build resilience and how do I persist through something, the ups and the downs, you know, I think is, is, is so important. And I remember when I quit my job at Morgan Stanley to start grow and, and back then it was not called that. It was just a hunch that I needed to do something different. My boss tried to give me an argument as to why I should stay. And he was like, just stay. So you get a little more experience doing X, Y, Z, like move maybe from and expand your portfolio, like expand from just trading to some of the structuring and the, the work around sort of the external client facing stuff so that you get the full life cycle. So just stay a couple more years. And then I think it'll be right the right time. And I was like, mm, no, I think I should just go and risk it all. And if it works, works, if it doesn't, I'll get another job. Like it, it didn't feel so like, existential because I was so passionate about what I was doing. But the, the one thing that actually the trading job prepared me for in a way that he never even anticipated, and I didn't, but having lived this journey now sort of fully appreciate is the volatile nature of the entrepreneurial journey <laughs> is, yes. you know, not sort of living off the highs and not getting too down when you're in yeah. the lows. And so trading is similar because you make money someday and you lose money someday and you 
or months on end and sort of knowing how to sort of balance yourself so that you survive that volatility was literally, I think, having done that as a trader, when I started the company and I was getting, you know, knocked around at times, it was like, oh, this is like a bad trading day. Okay. It's not, you know, and so, but I do think it requires passion to, to, to get persistence and sort of thinking beyond the current market to just yourselves in your lives or like your students now like you you have the whole world to explore so don't don't try to contort yourself too early to try and fit into something and a world that is constantly changing and evolving like create your own world you know that's yeah. sort of my my yeah. thing yeah Love it. My, my, Love answer, my answer is similar in a sense that when, when i was at stanford I, I i just know i want to make impact i want to be successful i don't know what that means I just want to do something that would make make a make a make a difference, and I want to be able to uh, be be good at. It. And so it would it took me some time to figure out what I like. Um, and I saw one question in the Q and A portal: um, Does the what's the our job at Wall Street prepare us? I think yes and no, and it it, it showed me what I don't want. Uh, I learned a lot of skills along the way, but it also showed me what I don't want. Um, and I, I know I, I cannot be good in financial engineering. I, I know I need to figure out ways to create value, make impact um, by being part of something new that can uh, sort of give me a chance to uh, make 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 a mark. And um, when I was in in banking, um, trying to sit, uh, it was a working M and A department. So there were a couple of sell side assignments. Um, one is in Vermont, and one is in Missouri. I went to both places. One was selling manufacturing fireplaces, and another one was selling and manufacturing. Um, Bath, uh, uh, bathroom uh, accessories, uh, furnishings. Um, and so it was interesting, both are selling because competition from Asia, they couldn't sustain manufacturing anymore in a cost-effective manner. So they need to sell to a buyer, they didn't even form buyers. And this was back in 93, 94. So the sort of howling out what was happening in America started as early as, as, as in the 80s and 90s. You can see trends, uh, uh, signals from data points along the way. So that, that I mean, we realize that we're living in a very interdependent world. Certain countries and regions are good, are better doing certain things than the others. So I took the time beyond learning about uh, specific technical skills. I tried to see what is the, how the world is evolving around us and where am I passionate about to make a difference to, to, to make an impact, whether it's uh, being a startup founder or it's being a VC, that come later. But along the way, um, I try to figure out what is that I'm passionate about. What, what, how, what will make me different than others that I work with and work compete with? Um, in terms of some skills, uh, networking of course is important. Um, technical skills, of course, it's just nice to have. If you can, you can even code and do things. You, do you want to be able to persuade people in, in communication with writing or through uh, public speaking? All of that matters. So it's hard to say which one is more important than the other. It's really about finding uh, your personality. What do you gravitate to? Because you're going to be working with or competing with you know, hundreds of, uh, of thousands of people. So you, you, for you to stand out, you got to do the stuff that you like the most and you're really good at. So figure out what you like and take the time to try it. Um, if it doesn't work out, don't worry about it because it all goes back into helping you down the road. All the things I learned as a banker or as a founder or as a, a growth investor all help me later in my career, in my second decade, to become useful and successful. 
and, and several, you know, the things that she was doing at trading help her deal with the life as a founder later. When you trade, you don't know that's going to that's going to make a difference for you down the road. But just trust that smart people doing interesting things along the way. That's something you're passionate about. Over time, which become useful for you as an overall tool set of the things you need to be able to do to be good. Oh, beautiful. You know, it reminds me. It's like. We only learn by living, right? You know, yeah. we don't have all the answers today. We can't really chart what our lives will look like 20 years from now. We might have a vision for it, but we have to we have to try things out. We have to iterate not only in our startups and in our organizations, but actually on ourselves. That's exactly right. Figure out what the refined and more refined answer is. So that's beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, I want to tuck in a few more questions if possible. So maybe coming back to you, Sarah, uh, we have a lot of votes on the question of what kind of real world impact have you seen through the distribution of the Grow platform, uh, particularly Grow for Good, which may be quite new right now or otherwise. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's interesting. There's three types of impact. One is impact that you make to sort of the operation of an organization or the decisions they make and sort of seeing them drive change um, in their businesses as a result of sort of uh, suggestions or, or sort of outputs of your model, right? So that's that's what I said is the ROI path. And that, that one's actually sort of, I think, the easiest. The second is sort of where you actively go out to help solve for some type of challenge. And, and then you're either successful or not. And, and, and really, you know, Grow for Good came about from, uh, you know, a few years ago, we started a data science team at, at Grow called um, the Rapid Response Data Science Team. And the goal of the Rapid Response Data Science Team was to be the ER of data science. So if something really unprecedented happened and we needed to build a model super fast. So not through the full engineering life cycle, but prototype the model, put it out there, see if it's so, so record floods and floods in a region that have never experienced it before. And we built this team to, to do that so that we can put things out to the market, really to our customers as fast as possible to get that feedback and see how well the models perform. Well, at the beginning of COVID, uh, another crisis that was happening was the locust crisis across East Africa going into South Asia. And the spread of locusts was threatening the lives of hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, with everybody distracted with COVID, there were not enough resources that were being deployed and not enough money being raised for fighting and battling the locusts. And so our rapid response team, plus actually a huge part of the company just volunteering over you know, a few days, built out what we called the locust impact kit. And we open sourced the models to basically assess both the spread of and the potential impact of locusts on crops in every single country that locusts had been detected in. So scaling sort of a methodology that required flying planes to see if there were locusts to saying, actually, we can look at a combination of imagery and sort of apply our knowledge of how crop yields work in sort of all the different regions we've done and develop yield models plus just assessments of how bad the locust impact would be to then do an assessment of how many dollars need to be raised versus what had been being raised by the UN, which at the time was $350 million. And we knew very quickly over $3 billion was needed. And so we opened that up and we got about 43 public organizations around the table. I mean, we were in 2 a.m. phone calls with governments trying to just help them like wake up to how bad this would be to mobilize that. And, and Grow for Good came really from that experience saying, we did a lot of good. We used the resources we had at a time, frankly, when the company itself was like trying to figure out what COVID meant for us, but it was our role to do that, right? And so Grow for Good was how do we 
use our platform to let many others do that because we as a company can't step in for every crisis considering the pace at which we're facing crises and the cost of these crises is going up and there are going to be many sort of countries and sort of many use cases where that are not necessarily commercial. And so I think Rogue for Good exists because of one of these sort of projects we've done. Amazing, amazing. I was wondering, I was actually going to ask you for more detail because I've heard of your work in Locus, but not in that depth. Uh, let me combine two of the uh, most popular questions here. And it actually touches upon a little bit about um, you creating this rapid response team and then uh, you know, grow for good coming out of it. Um, you know, every business over time evolves and pivots. And we talked about iteration earlier. Um, was it, We could take the pandemic, for example, it affected any and every business on earth. So, you know, was there a period during Grow's history that was, um, you know, challenging for whatever reason that basically caused you to pivot and adapt in a unique way? I mean, there's many challenges along the road. <laughs> and I think it goes back to a point Hans made though, which is you need to make these incremental changes really, really fast, not wait for sort of massive pivots to occur to redefine who you are, right? And that's sort of that difference between what I mentioned around sort of mission and vision versus the tactics to get there, right? And so have we changed the path by which we're getting to our end goal? Absolutely. And we constantly continue to fine tune that path, whether it's determining where exactly to, to sort of sell our product, how to reach our audience, how, how to present ourselves to the world and speak about ourselves, right? That, like, you know, last year, one of the big things we did is we did a complete rebranding. You know, our logo used to be circle and red and, and that were blue and then it has a completely new look. And that involved a massive sort of journey. And it's not a pivot, but it's actually a seminal change in sort of the way that we then interact with sort of the world, right? And so I think thinking about it as small incremental changes, I would say mm -hmm. that's all my job is, is to find out and fine tune what we're doing constantly. And sometimes if you're actually a person that's super structured and you'd like to have complete clarity on what to do, like a startup is like, you know, disrupting to disruptive to your sort of belly all the time. <laughs> Oh, gosh, what a great answer. So I know we only have a minute left. and I do want to close with uh, the question we love asking uh, our guests, which is, you know, once upon a time, you know, Sarah, you were a 20 year old sitting in the front row, maybe back row, I don't know, uh, of uh, in a, a talk like this, uh, uh, listening to entrepreneurs who were coming before you. Same thing for you, Hans. You were sitting in the front row, you know, in uh, you know, auditorium, in Terman. Uh, listening to talks like this, if you could just transport yourself back in time and the person you are today could give the person you were as a 20 year old, like one sentence of advice, what would you say to the 20 year old version of yourself? Um, I always think of yourself as an owner, not as an agent. It's very easy to say, I want this, I want that. What can you do for me? Um, but everywhere you go, if you think like an owner, that this your, you want to you know, make some positive contribution to every owner that you enjoy, your boss will appreciate that. And you think about, well, how can I make my boss job easier, uh, but adding more value? And um, you're not just, well, this is what I did, only focus on your, your own self. You can get promoted faster, you get more responsibility earlier or sooner. Because everyone wants to hire someone else that can solve their problem. And so you think like an owner, not thinking as, as an agent, 
your career, you can do more uh, in your career and rise faster because people will give you more responsibility because they know you have their best interests at heart. So that's something that I did not know when I was growing up because I was I was need what do I need? What do I need to get? I need to be successful. I need this. I want that. And you know, no one people don't want to hear other people's problems. They want to have their own problems solved for them. So if you think like an owner, that's an agent, you will go for it. Oh, I love it. Love it, Sarah. Uh, be your authentic self. Don't try mm-hmm. to be anything for anybody um, because it's really hard to pretend what thing you're adopting to, to be this one thing versus another. If you're constantly sort of shaping yourself to fit into a world, it's really sort of, it's hard to keep up with yourself, right? And it's life is hard as it is. So sort of just bring your best and authentic self um, to what you do every single day. And I think I was very lucky in that I learned that lesson very, 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 very early on in my career, like when I was 20. And I made that promise to myself. And I've never sort of, you know, <laughs> I think what you see is always what you get with me, which I, and it's really, I think, helpful. And that, that, that advice is also very good. If you couple and uh, put together both of our advices, there's two sides of the same coin. It's hard to think like an owner about a problem you don't care about. And that's not your authentic self. So you end up doing both. That's how you find the best path for yourself. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.